Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. start off, we're going to jump right in. You can go to chapter 10 of the book of Acts. So if you have a physical Bible, great. There's one in the information rack in front of you. If you don't, uh, and if you're more of a digital person, that's great too. You can follow along. Uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter 10 in Acts today. Um, it is a very, very popular story. It's one that probably if you've been around the church any amount of time, you may have heard. Um, and it's what a lot of scholars refer to as like the hinge story in the book of Acts. Um, before this point, uh, most of the followers of Jesus just kind of believed that this new family that Jesus is creating, this new kingdom that he's establishing here, it was just pretty much meant for Jewish people. And not to like be a spoiler, but I mean, that all changes throughout the course of this story. And we see that, that not only Jewish people, but in fact, all people are invited in to uh, this family that Jesus has created. And uh, as we get ready to look at this story, as familiar as it may seem, and as, as maybe you're still turning there or whatever, I just wanted to ask like a, a rhetorical question. I mean, you can answer, I guess, if you want. But um, have you ever been in a, maybe a situation or a season of life, or maybe it's like a new job or whatever, where you feel like you are totally in, like 100%, you're in on whatever is coming up. Um, you are committed to it. You believe in it. You are 100% there, but as you walk down that path, as time goes by, you start to realize more and more that, man, I'm in this, and I'm committed to this, but I'm missing some things. I, I, I do not see the full picture, even though I'm completely committed to it. I'm sure that every single person in this room has had experiences like that. When I think of things in my life where I am completely in 100%, but I am missing big chunks of what I need to be able to do it well, my instant, instant thought is parenting. Like 100%. I know that's not everyone's experience here in the room, but for anyone who has kids, probably your mind jumped there as well. I, I remember the very first moment where Megan came to me and she said, hey, I'm pregnant. We're going to have our first child. And that was Abby. She's 10 years old now, so 10 some years ago. Uh, she came to me and she told me this. And I remember in that moment, I was like, I am a thousand percent on board with this. Good, right? I mean, you need to be. But, but I was like, I am like completely into this. And this is no shame on anybody who had maybe had these feelings when they found out they were having a baby. I wasn't that guy who was like, oh man, like that's going to like cost us a lot. And what does that mean for our relationship between us and our freedoms are kind of taken a little bit now. Those are all real things. They do happen. But that wasn't my like first reaction. Um, I was just really, really pumped. And that's been something that has been true for most of my life. When I was a little kid, my parents tell me this all the time, that when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I either said a paleontologist, which didn't pan out, obviously, or uh, a dad. I would say, I just want to be a dad. I've, I've been so excited about that for so much of my life, and I still am. Like, I have five kids now, and apart from my relationship to Jesus, like, this is the best thing I'm doing with my life. I love it. I don't do it perfectly. It's really hard sometimes, but oh man, I am in it. I am fully committed to it. There's never been a moment since then where I'm like, man, could we just leave them? Would that be quite so bad? You know, I've never had that thought. I'm not saying you have, but if you have, it's okay. Um, I've never had that thought. So I've been 100% in, but 
what I became aware of very, very quickly, that, that even though I am in, I am committed to this whole parenting thing, it only took me about 10 seconds into being an actual parent before I realized I know nothing. Every parent, no one in this room can argue with me, every parent before their kid is out into the world looks at everyone else around them. They're like, I can't believe that they think that's so hard. I know what to do. I won't ever do this. My kid will never do this. They think that they can do it perfectly. And then any good parent, and I emphasis on good parent, will very quickly discover, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm doing. All the bad parents that I know double down and say, no, no, I got this, I got this. Like the really good ones recognize that even though I'm committed to my kids, even though I'm in this, I probably have some blind spots. There's things that come up from maybe my history or experiences I've had or things I hold to be true that that make me unable to see clearly what I need to do in this whole parenting thing. And I think that probably every person in this room has some experience they can look at and say, oh, that's true. I, I have had that experience in that particular situation. I was committed to it. I'm all in, but I'm, I'm missing maybe some important things. And what I have found that really stuck out to me in this passage of scripture we're going to look at today, this interaction that Peter has, is I had never pieced this together before, um, that Peter, who there's no argument, was sold out for Jesus. Can we settle that? Like, he loved Jesus, one of his best friends. If there was a person who was committed to the church, certainly it would be Peter in this moment. So he was a 1,000% in, 1,000% committed. And what we find here is Peter, who walked and talked and spent time with Jesus, still had a massive blind spot in how he understood the mission of the church which also showed a big blind spot in his understanding of God's heart. And it all centered around this idea of whether or not Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish, were able to be a part of this new movement and this new family. And and as we look at it, I think we're going to find a lot of the similar things that are going on with Peter, we might look at our life and find to be true in ours as well. And, And I found this to be incredibly encouraging and challenging as we uh, take this information and we apply it to our lives. But let's walk through the story first together. Um, We're not going to read every single verse. That would take a really long time, but I'm going to condense some parts. We're going to kind of tell the story, highlight a few specific verses. So you're welcome to follow along if you'd like to, um, or you can kind of sit back and listen. And I would really encourage you to read through it maybe after the fact, maybe later today or or this coming week. Uh, there's, There's a ton of great, great stuff in here. And what happens at the beginning of chapter 10 is we get introduced to a character we haven't met before, a man we've never met before. He's a real person named Cornelius. And Cornelius lived in a town called Caesarea, and it wasn't too far from the town Joppa, which is where we left Peter last week. You may remember Peter kind of went on his tour visiting the churches, and he performed some miracles, and he was staying in a town called Joppa with some believers. So Caesarea wasn't too far away, and Cornelius lived there, and Scripture tells us that Cornelius was a centurion. Um, Without going into too much detail, he was basically a military man that was stationed in this community. He worked for the Roman Empire, and basically his job was just to squash any kind of rebellion that might come up. That's why he was there, to squash Jewish rebellion, which is kind of ironic because what we find about Cornelius is that he's described as someone who was devout and a God-fearer is how scripture describes him. He, on some level, had a respect and a worship 
toward the God of Israel. He prayed, Scripture tells us. He did charitable acts toward the Jewish people. Um, He led his family in all of these things. He wasn't a full-fledged convert. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't didn't observe the uh, dietary restrictions. He didn't go to the temple and sacrifice and worship. Didn't do any of those things. But there was something in him that drew him to the God of Israel. Um, And that's certainly the Holy Spirit working in his life before any of this goes down. And so scripture tells us that he was praying one day and he spent a good amount of time doing this. And as he was praying, an angel shows up and calls him by name. And the angel tells him, hey, God has noticed you. Like he has seen what you're doing, the good things you've done. He's noticed how you've been praying toward him. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some people and I want you to send them to the town called Joppa and I want you to send them to this very specific place. He gives them all the details, the certain house owned by the certain man. And I want you to ask for a guy named Peter. So he tells them all this information and the angel takes off. Immediately, Cornelius is like, oh, we got to get going on this. So he grabs a couple servants and, and he sends a soldier with them and they head off to Joppa to find Peter. Cutscene over to Joppa and we start to catch up with what Peter was doing. Now, remember, he had performed these miracles, that small little thing of bringing someone back from the dead. Not a big deal, right? And he's at this, he's at this house of a man named Simon, who Scripture describes as a tanner. Um, so tanner, he would, he would deal with dead animals. And that would be something that would be kind of an odd place for someone like Peter to stay. Um, as someone who, who was Jewish and observed all of those restrictions, like being around dead animals, it was kind of out of the norm. It was a little bit odd. Um, And what it kind of is doing is it's foreshadowing, like, where this story is headed. Peter's not, like, full tilt, like, get rid of it all yet. But obviously, there's, like, a progression here of him just thinking through what it means to be a part of God's family. And maybe it's not as, like, practical as maybe he once thought. But in whatever case, what we find him doing at this house by the sea is going up on the roof and taking some time to pray which I'm sure he did a lot that wasn't like a new occurrence in Peter's life. Um, And while he's up there praying, like probably happens to so many of us, as he spent some time praying, he starts to get kind of hungry. And he's like, hey, guys, can you make me some food? And so the the servants or whoever is down in the house, and they're preparing the food for Peter. And what Scripture tells us is that he falls into a trance. So I did a little bit of digging on like what that means, thinking, oh, trance probably just means something practical that like I can wrap my head around. It's not. <laughs> it's as weird as it sounds. Like, it is inherently supernatural. It's, it's inherently mystical. It's not the norm of how God would speak to his people. It happens a few times throughout Scripture, but it's not as regular as a lot of the other ways that we see the Holy Spirit speak to people. And it definitely wasn't super common for Peter up until this point. It probably means we should pay attention, that God used something so outside the box to communicate something so important to his servant. So if you think the idea of him falling into a trance is weird, just wait, because what he experiences during that is even weirder. Peter looks up, and he sees the heavens open, and he sees this large sheet, this big piece of fabric, being lowered down from the sky by its four corners. And in this sheet is a whole bunch of animals, all the four-footed animals, all the reptiles, all the birds of the air, which is weird enough in itself, but then what happens next really pushes Peter over the edge. Scripture tells us a voice says to him, Peter, get up, kill these animals, and eat them. 
and Peter freaks out. Like genuinely, we read, I mentioned this last week, we read scripture so, so sterile, but we shouldn't. But we need to look at like what a human response would be to these, to these things that we read about. And Peter's response is, is visceral. He's like, no, Lord. There's, a, there's an emphasis there. There's an exclamation point at the end. He's like, absolutely not. And he gives him a reason. For I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. You might think Peter had like figured out that you probably shouldn't say no to God because the last time he did this, Jesus told him to get behind him, Satan. But obviously, this isn't a lesson that he had learned. And he's still just, there's that, there's that um, picture of like that really brash man that we met in the gospel, still alive and well inside Peter. And he came out during this time. So he is really, really adamant, no, I will not do that. I will, I've never once in my life eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. So what is he talking about there? Well, without going into great, great detail, what we know about ancient Jewish people and even uh, many parts of that family uh, today have dietary restrictions. Um, There are things that come from what Scripture describes as the Mosaic Covenant, this agreement between God and his people given through Moses with a whole bunch of rules, things that that are helpful to the nation of Israel, things that set them aside as kind of a, a, of a unique relationship with God. And a bunch of those rules center around food because a lot of our life centers around food, right? And so they had a long list of animals that they said, if you are a part of the Israelite nation, you do not eat these kinds of animals. And there's all kinds of theories and reasons why that might be the case. Probably the truth is there's, there's a little bit of truth in all of these different takes. There's, there's the idea that, uh, that this was a way of setting apart the nation of Israel. Like when the world would look at Israel, they would see that something is different about them. And that's probably somewhat true. There's also like people point to the, the, the practical side of it. That a lot of these animals that God told his people not to eat, if you don't prepare them right, they can make you really sick. They tend to carry disease. It was a way of helping the Israelites not kill themselves off so quickly as they're wandering around the desert. That's probably, there's probably some truth in that as well. There's also the, uh, the issue of, of worship, and a lot of these different animals were connected to pagan worship, and God wanted Israelites' worship to be centered toward him. Whatever the case is, this was a very, very established fact by the time that we got to where Peter is in this moment. This was not something Jewish people did. They did not eat these kinds of animals that he saw in the sheet. And Peter would never do that. He is insulted at even the idea of eating something unclean. So he responds very intensely, but the voice speaks back to him. It says again a second time, verse 15, the voice says to him, what God has made clean do not call impure. What God has made clean, you don't get to call unclean. Verse 16 tells us that this happens three times. I don't know if Peter objected, and so the voice kept saying this over and over again, or if it just said it three times. But after the third time, the object suddenly was taken back up into heaven. At this point, Peter snaps out of his trance. And what we find him, we find him in a state of stress as soon as he comes out of this trance. Scripture says he was perplexed. He was anxious about what in the world could this mean. It was threatening. It seemed out of the box. He was not sure like what he should walk away with understanding this this vision, this, this, this picture that was given to him inside this trance. And as he's sitting there contemplating this, thinking about this, stressing over this, the men that Cornelius sent showed up at Simon's house. 
And they start asking, hey, is, is the guy named Peter, is he staying here? We were supposed to come find him. Perfect timing, right? Almost like the Holy Spirit like, knew what he was doing and orchestrating all of this, right? So Peter's sitting up there on the roof, still thinking about this vision and stressing over it, wondering what it could mean. And what I find really interesting here is he is prompted not by Simon, the owner of the home, not by the servants in the home, not by the people who were sent there by Cornelius, but what Scripture tells us is that he heard the voice of the Spirit speak to him, which he recognized. The Spirit tells him, hey, there are some men down there looking for you. Go down there. Go with them right away. Don't have any doubts about it because I'm the one that sent them. I find it so interesting here. Peter's response to the trance versus Peter's response to the voice of the Spirit. Obviously, he knew what it was like to hear the voice of the Spirit. Now, was the trance not from God? No, obviously it is. But what is really interesting to me is God had to use something incredibly out of the box to grab Peter's attention to the point where Peter was like, I'm not even sure where this is coming from. I think so often that can be the case for us. We know what it sounds like for God to speak to us in a context that we're used to. But when God starts speaking to us in something that seems a little outside the box, we instantly shut it down. How many times are we guilty of that? I think Peter was too. God's been really faithful through this process to keep pushing him forward though. And so to Peter's credit, he goes down, he obeys what the Spirit says, he, and he ends up getting the whole story from these men. They tell him how they serve this guy named Cornelius, and this angel came and talked to him, and, and they sent him to come find him. And so Peter decides, I will go with you. Let's get a good night's rest, and we'll head there in the morning. When they arrive in Caesarea, um, they find that Cornelius has, like, everybody ready to go. Like, he's gathered together his family. He's gathered together a bunch of close friends. They're all at his house, and they cannot wait to hear what Peter has to say. This, like, mysterious celebrity that God was bringing to their house to do, like, a revival service or whatever it is, you know? Like, they were really excited to see what this was. And in fact, when Peter walks in the door, Cornelius doesn't have the full picture. He falls at Peter's feet and starts to worship him like Peter is God. And Peter very quickly puts a stop to that. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm just a man just like you. That's not why I'm here. Let's not do that. And you can almost imagine him like picking Cornelius up. And as they walk through Cornelius's home, um, they're talking and they're walking and they enter this room that is just packed full of people, but not just any people, packed full of Gentile people. People who didn't have a place, at least in Peter's conception, in God's family. People who uh, were seen kind of as uh, the people who, who were keeping the Jewish nation under their thumb. People who were lesser than the Jewish people. People who didn't have that connection to God. That's the, that's the setting that he walked into. There was a big relational divide between the people that he was about to go interact with. And Peter walks in. And this is how he greets them. I find it hilarious. I think there's so much more humor in scripture than we are willing to, to accept. We read it like it needs to be like King James style or whatever, but there's so much humor in scripture. Can you imagine this situation? All these people so pumped that Peter is coming and this is what Peter decides to lead with. He walks in in verse 28, let me just read it for you. He's like, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. Hi, I'm Peter. I shouldn't be here right now. We shouldn't be having this conversation right now. 
But what he says is, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean, which feels like a backhanded compliment, right? It's like, hey, God told me that you really dirty, unclean people, I'm not supposed to see you like that anymore. So he says, I'm here. That's why I came without any objection, almost like I'm doing you a favor. So may I ask why you sent for me? Like what this does for me that is encouraging to me is even at this process or at this point in the story, uh, Peter is still deep in process to what this could actually mean. Like he obeyed the spirit. He went where the spirit told him to go, but he's still like, I'm not really sure why I'm here. Like, can you tell me why I'm here? (laughs) It's kind of scandalous that we're even having this conversation. So he's in process, but what we do see in Peter is this progressive openness for the spirit to lead the conversation forward. That, that he, you get this sense that he might be starting to think, are these things I have held onto so tightly for my entire life, is this the future of the church that Jesus has established? So he says this incredibly tactless thing to these people, and you can, st- you can tell there's still a little bit of reservation there. But he asked them, why in the world did you ask me to come here? And Cornelius offers it up. He tells them again the whole story from his own mouth. He said, I was praying. This angel came to me. He, they told me to, to send some men to Joppa and to find you, and now you're here. And after hearing all this directly from Cornelius' mouth, this is what Peter responds with. And this is where everything, the whole trajectory of the story changes. Verse 34, Peter says this. He began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. It's like, I finally get it. God doesn't show partiality. I finally understand this, that this gospel is for all people. That was a big deal for him to say, because he wasn't just saying, like, oh, I get it, and it's like a theoretical thing. Peter's saying, I was wrong. I understand now that I was wrong about what I was so sure was wrong bedrock truth in my life now that the spirit has revealed it to me he admits he was wrong that this thing isn't for a certain type of person but instead that god's grace and family is available to anyone who would turn away from their sin and toward him and so he goes into this beautiful gospel message he starts telling them about the person of jesus and he starts by saying you've heard of this guy I'm sure that you have. This, this man that came from Nazareth and uh, was given all authority and power through the Holy Spirit by God, he walked around the countryside healing the sick and raising the dead and driving out demons, and he stood in opposition to evil. He says, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. But they still came, and they still took him away, and they still killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead. I'm not just telling you that. I saw that too. I sat with him and I ate with him. I spent time with him and he told us to go and to preach to the people that we encountered in our life that through Jesus and only through Jesus, we can have relationship with God. And by believing him, who he says he is, by believing him, you can receive forgiveness from your sins. It's a beautiful gospel message presented to these people that a day before, I don't think would have even ever been on Peter's radar. People who wouldn't even be capable of understanding this. While this is happening, something wild goes down. 
the Gentiles, they get a touch of the Spirit. Like, they start to do the exact same things that the disciples were doing in the upper room on the day of Pentecost earlier in the book of Acts. They start to speak in tongues. They start to give uh, singing praises uh, to God of the greatness of God. And, Pete, and, and the, the other Jewish people who were there, they were blown away. They're like, I can't believe this is happening amongst Gentiles. These people, the Spirit can live in these people? I can't even believe that. And Peter is, is the most floored out of anyone, and it leads him to say, man, we need to get some water in here because these people need to get baptized. Who are we to hold back the waters of baptism from these people who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit? So they get some water in there or go to water. I don't know how exactly it happened, but Peter baptizes all of these new part of God's family. It becomes official. It becomes incredibly obvious that the gospel is for all people. No more questioning. No more guessing. It's for everyone. And this is an incredibly inspiring story, and one that we look back on with hindsight, and it makes all kinds of sense to us. Like, of course, of course the gospel is for all people. Wasn't Jesus, like, really upfront about that from, like, the very beginning? Wasn't that, wasn't that exactly what John 3.16 says, that this is for all people? When, when he left them, didn't he tell them to go and preach to all nations and all people? Why is this such a big deal? for Peter and for the other Jews who are here. But let's not forget that even though Peter seems game for this, what happened here was absolutely obliterating some of the things that he had believed and known to be true his entire life. Peter was being confronted with maybe the biggest blind spot in his life. And as we read his story, he had more than a few that he had to work through. But in this interaction, he's being confronted with the biggest blind spot in his life. I can so appreciate this story, and I find it so encouraging because I'll be really honest and just transparent here. I feel like this sometimes. Like, especially where we're at, like, as a church right now and, like, the way the world is at this particular moment. Like, I have never been so sure on a personal level that Jesus is worth it never before in my life. Like my love and my passion and my desire to know Jesus, to hear his voice has never been higher. And, and a lot of that's because we've been stepping in as a church to do the very things that Jesus has given us to draw close to him, right? We've talked about that a number of times now, giving, prayer, fasting, meditating on God's word, enlisting ourselves in his mission in this world. And that has grown my love and desire. I've never been more sure that he's worth it. And I've never been more sure of what the church is meant to do. The big picture church, but us too. I've never been more sure that we are not supposed to be this space that people just show up to once a week and they get a shot in the arm for some kind of motivation. Then we go out and by the time we get back, we're drained again. But instead, we are a group of people that are the church that go out to make disciples of all people, teaching them how to follow Jesus and how to become disciples and disciple makers themselves. I've never been more sure of that. But can I be really honest? There are times where I feel like I believe that I'm 100%, but man, I struggle to get traction. Like all the same stuff that hung me up still exists out there, and sometimes it gets the best of me. 
I think like Peter, maybe one of the reasons that we can feel 100% committed to the mission of Jesus and yet see it play out so weak in our lives is because we might have some blind spots that we are not allowing God to reveal to us and we are unwilling to walk through when he does. This story could have ended so different for Peter. He could have gone back to Jerusalem and been like, listen, Paul's this outlier. He cares about Gentiles. I don't really care what he does but this thing's just for Jewish people. That would have been just as easy for him to do. But instead, he responded when God revealed a massive blind spot in his life. What he does for Peter, I believe that he does for us as well. I don't think we can stay in this place where we can leave our blind spots, the things that we thought were settled, the things that that seem to make the most sense to us, to us, I don't think we can leave them unattended. We need to ask honestly, almost ruthlessly, God, is this actually aligned with your heart and what you're doing in this world? So as we look at this interaction, how God dealt with Peter and what Peter did in response, I think there's a few things here that, that speak to us in our blind spots because every single one of us have them, how we are to see them and how we are to walk through them. I want to go through those quickly here. The first one is this, uh, Peter was incapable of recognizing his own blind spot. It took a weird out-of-the-box move of the Holy Spirit for Peter to recognize that he even had a blind spot. I think the same is true of us. I mean, when we look at Peter's life, he should have had lots of dots to connect that this gospel was for everyone. He was with Jesus when Jesus went and ministered to Gentiles. Paul came and said, Jesus literally knocked me off my horse and told me I'm going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We even see a little bit of progression as he was staying at Simon's house, and, and the, the paralyzed man last week was probably a Gentile. Like, there was, there was forward motion, but he was still so comfortable believing that this gospel was only meant for Jewish people. He could not fathom anything different until the Holy Spirit broke into his life, broke into his construct of how things worked and said, you are off base. I think the same is true of us. If we have a supernatural problem, we need a supernatural solution. We need the right tools for the job, so to speak. I'm like the worst man's man, like on the planet. Like there's guys in this room, and I'm sure you'll be offended when I tell you what what the state of my tools, but there's, you know, the guy has like the, the, the pegboard and there's like every single tool is hung on there. All the sockets are where they belong. Everything's all organized. There's those guys. My tools that I have, most of which I like borrowed from someone and never got it back to them, are in a bucket in my shed. All of them are in one bucket in my shed. I am terrible. I'm a terrible man's man. <laughs> And in those tools, I I never know what's in there. I never know what to find. And nine times out of 10, if I need to do some kind of work or fix something or whatever, I go to my trusty uh, pair of like vice clamp pliers. I don't even know what the right term is for what it is. That's how bad I am at this. But that's my go-to. I'm like, this will work. It'll be a screwdriver when it needs to be a screwdriver. It'll be a socket wrench when it needs to be a socket wrench. I could probably cut this if I tighten it enough and really pull on it. You know, I can make this work for whatever I need to do. It's not the right tool for the vast majority of the jobs that it gets used for. But I'm like, oh, I'll make it work. It's what I know. It's what I can find. It's what I'm used to. 
And what I find to be true, and I use the wrong tool for the job, it takes way longer than it needs to. It's way more painful and frustrating than it needs to be. And maybe the worst, it also ends up causing a lot of damage because I'm using it. Like, it rips things, it gets holes in things, it messes up the nuts and bolts because I'm using the wrong thing to try to accomplish something that it wasn't made for. And, I, th- and I, I keep coming back to this truth, and it's just weighed on me really heavily over the last few weeks that if we really believe that the problem in this world is a supernatural problem, that sin is the problem, and that the brokenness in this world results from sin in people's lives, then we believe that the problem is inherently supernatural. So why in the world has the church for such a long time tried to fix it with physical solutions? It takes way longer than it needs to. It's way more painful than it needs to, and it probably causes more damage than we'd like to believe. A supernatural problem of sin needs a supernatural solution, which is the invading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I get it. We have Baptist roots, and so anytime the Holy Spirit comes up, it's like, ooh, I don't know about that. But here's the deal. This is like in the pages of Scripture. We cannot argue it. Our problem is supernatural. The solution must be supernatural. Peter never would have gotten on board with this if the Holy Spirit hadn't shown up in his life, disrupted everything he thought he knew so that he could see actual, real picture of God's heart. So what does that leave us to do? That's the frustrating part to me. I can program with the best of them. We can market this church the best way possible. We can, we can have the best systems in place. And, it, and that does not mean that we're going to be a disciple-making church. We can have all of those things fall by the wayside, but have the Holy Spirit, and we will be doing just fine. Majority of the world and history is in that boat. Now, I'm not saying throw everything out. I'm not saying that. Don't, don't, don't hear that. But I think oftentimes we're relying on our systems to change a person's heart. We're relying on our programs to bring a dead person back to life. We're relying on our marketing to transform a person's mind and life into the likeness of Jesus. No wonder it's not working. So, I don't know what to tell you to do so that you can hear the Holy Spirit, but I do think all of us have one action step out of this, which is when we go home and when we start our days and when we go through our days, we get on our knees in repentance and ask God to speak to us clearly. And that when he shows up, whether we asked him to or not, because Peter was not looking for this, Holy Spirit showed up anyway, will we respond? Or will we double down, dig in our heels, and hold tight to what we thought we should be doing? We have a spiritual problem. We need a spiritual solution. I got to keep going. The second thing that I see here that Peter did, so that's what God did. God invaded Peter's life with the Holy Spirit, but then Peter had a response. He did something out of that interaction. And uh, what, I, what I see him do is I see him humble himself. It's a really interesting picture, uh, this particular story. I found this out as I was like doing research about it, is a lot of scholars will take the story of Peter and Cornelius and they'll map it onto another story that is very similar from the Old Testament, the story of Jonah. And it, they kinda, it's almost like Luke uh, like looks at the camera and like gives it a wink when he says, hey, Peter's in Joppa. You know who else spent some time in Joppa? Jonah spent some time in Joppa. Oh, do you see more comparisons and similarities? Oh, interesting. Maybe you should pay attention to that. 
Joppa is the place that Jonah went to try to get away from God's calling in his life. But when you look at these two stories, there's a lot of similar beats. They were both men who were, who were called by God to deliver a message to people who are separated from God, Gentile people. Jonah the Ninevites, Peter, Cornelius, and his family and friends. They both were not on board with this at first. They were really worried about it. They were concerned about it. God intervened to do away with their concerns in a unique and powerful way. This vision for Peter and Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. Peter had the better of the two deals out of that one for sure. What we find is eventually they are obedient to what God says. They go and they deliver the message. Jonah did a terrible job delivering it. Peter did a much better job. But then the story ends with these Gentiles, these people who were separated from God, responding in repentance, understanding what God has done for them and turning their hearts toward him. So it's very similar as it goes with one distinct difference. And I think it's one we need to hang on to here. Jonah never once was willing to humble himself before the people God called him to. Peter was willing to do that. They were both humbled in front of God. Jonah did a lot of praying in the belly of that fish. And I don't think it's any coincidence that God told Peter three times, do not call things unclean that I have made clean. Three is a big deal in symbolism in the Jewish faith, but if we also just look at Peter's like actual life, and things came in three for that guy. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times the rooster crowed. Three times Jesus said, feed my sheep, as he reinstated him, brought him back in. You better believe that his mind jumped as soon as that third statement of do not call things unclean that I have called clean. So God humbled both of these men. But Jonah, after he went to the Ninevites and said, destruction's coming, best of luck, which was basically what he said, went up on a mountain, sat down, wanted to watch the show, and was so irritated when it didn't happen. He was so upset that God didn't destroy everyone. You, sh- you, you hold that in contrast to what Peter did here. Peter goes to these people that he, for most of his life, thought was, he was better than. He said, I see now that I was wrong. I'm humbling myself in front of you. Who am I to hold back baptism from you? It all comes back down to humility. Are you tired of hearing about it yet? I mean, for years we've been on this, and we're going to keep being on it because I am convinced that one of the best ways to maintain our blind spots is with pride, and one of the best ways to move through them quickly is to embrace humility, make the choice to humble ourselves so that we can move forward and align ourselves to the purpose of God. When's the last time I purposefully humbled myself, especially in front of people who don't know Jesus? Is that what we're known for as Christians, as the church? To humble ourselves when we're wrong in front of people who don't know God? It's not our reputation. More often than not, we're known for doubling down, for digging in our heels, even if we're wrong. I think it speaks a much more accurate word of God's heart when we embrace humility. The last thing, we're going to wrap up with this, that I see in Peter's life is I see a, a willingness to risk internally. I don't even know if that's the phrase that's best to describe this, but it's the one that made the most sense to me, so let me explain it. He was willing to risk internally. Peter, as we look at his life, he is a rough and tumble guy. There's no way around that. 
He's the first one ready to fight. He's the guy who was willing to cut off someone's ear after Jesus' death and resurrection. He went to jail a bunch before this point. He was beaten. He was chased out. And none of that seemed to phase him. He was just, he was a guy who was like, man, if I die, I die, but I'm going to preach the gospel, whatever. But then we get to this, where Jesus says, hey, more people can be part of this family than you thought, and he is stressed out. He is not sure if that's true, and he is not sure if he can get on board with that. The external risk he was fine with, but the internal risk, and that was a lot harder for him. I don't know if this is true of you, but I I feel that for myself. I'm the type of person, like, I can hop on an airplane, go to a different country, go do, walk around here in the middle of the night. None of that super phases me. But for me to be really vulnerable with one of you terrifies me. External risk, okay, fine. But internal risk, oh, man, that's a lot harder for some of us. It's a lot harder for some of us. And I think that, that spiritually, some of us might find ourselves in that boat. I think there's people in the room today who genuinely, like, push comes to shove, gun to your head, might give your life for Jesus. I, th- I think there's people in here who would really do it that might also have a really hard time letting go of something that they thought was true so that they could be more aligned with Jesus, that might, that might find it really hard to let go of a relationship or a way of functioning or a certain theological secondary issue or a political ideology or a bank account number, or fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. They're things that we don't even need people to know that we wrestle with. But what Peter does is he's willing to let go of something he held on to his whole life. He knew that it would come with scrutiny. The next chapter over, he has to go tell all the other Jews in Jerusalem why he baptized all these Gentiles. I have to believe that that was weighing on his heart and mind. He was totally fine with all this external risk, but he had to make the choice to risk what was internal. And I think we have to as well, because the reality is, I mentioned this last week, no one here is afraid to die for Jesus right now in our country, in the time in which we live. Are we willing to give up some of the things that we're holding so tightly internally so that if that day comes, there'll be no question? I think it's something we gotta ask ourselves. I think we won't move past our blind spots unless we are willing to risk what's eternal. Internal, I apologize. The story ends um, with a kind of beautiful scene. Uh, Scripture doesn't go into it much, but it tells us that Peter stuck around for a few days. Like he hung out with this Gentile crew of people. Um, Likely he was kind of filling them in on what this meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to live in community. And Scripture doesn't say this, and I'm not trying to read into things that aren't there, but One thing we do know about almost every gathering of Christians in the Bible is one thing was always present, and that was the Lord's Supper. It was communion. And oftentimes, like at this time in the life of the church, it was was a meal that then they pointed toward Jesus as they ate this meal. And And I got thinking about that, and I was like, what a beautiful picture. Can you imagine what was going through Peter's head? Where he's like, I remember that first meal I shared with Jesus. And it was just a few of his best friends. We were all Jewish. And I had no idea where this thing was headed. Can you imagine him sitting down at a table with his Jewish brothers and now all these Gentile brothers and look and say, man, how much bigger this is than I originally thought? How much more does God have in store than I originally thought? I would have missed this if I had held so tightly to something 
that I thought was true, if I had ignored the voice of the Spirit, if I had ignored uh, and, and given in to the fear of risking the things that are internal, I would have missed it. And I, and I, I think about that too. I think about uh, the world around us, and I think about all these people across oceans and continents and jail cells and in cement boxes and in cathedrals and everywhere else, how much bigger the family of God is than even we can conceive. And how I, for one, I do not want to miss that. I do not want to miss it because I am, I am afraid or I am stuck or I am apathetic to where the Spirit is leading me or the Spirit is leading us. I often, I, I imagined as I, as I read through this how Peter might sit down with these Gentiles and he would take the bread as they were, as they were observing Jesus, the supper that he had with his disciples. And he said, hey, Jesus had this bread and he passed it around and he broke it and he said, hey, my body is gonna be broken for you. The perfect picture of humility. Jesus allowing himself to literally be humiliated by the breaking of his body. And he said, as Jesus did this, let's remember what he's done for us. Let's do that here today as well. Let's take the bread together. Let it push us to greater humility. And then they would pass around the cup. They say, you see how this wine is poured out of this cup? Jesus told us that his blood would be poured out as well physical agony to be sure but let's not forget that this was a spiritual act of war when Jesus spilt his blood problem supernatural we needed the supernatural solution of Jesus blood to be made whole to be in right standing with God he would look at these people who he never conceived could be part of this family and said as we drink this let's remember what Jesus has done to us physically yes but more so what he has done for us supernaturally Let's remember him this morning. As we wrap up this morning, I think we have a very obvious like next step available to us, which is as we walk out of here, if we can just simply recognize that we have blind spots, that's a very good first step. If Peter had them, certainly so do we. But as we encounter them and as the Spirit reveals them to us, what will be our response? Will we hold tightly? Will we be afraid? Will we be obsessed with control over our situation? Or will we listen to the voice of the Spirit? Will we risk whatever we need to risk? And will we follow Him anywhere He leads? I think that's plenty for us to work on for a week. And I have a sneaking suspicion that God is going to bring more than enough of our blind spots to the surface. What I find, just as a word of encouragement as we get out of here though, is that just because we have blind spots doesn't mean we aren't committed. It just means we have to be willing to keep going. So we don't have to feel bad right now. We should feel encouraged that we can be all in on Jesus and he is so good and so faithful to us that he will continue to show us how we still need to grow. That's not bad. That's good. That's life. That's transformation. That's what we're here for. So let's not see it as a burden. Let's see it as the gift that it is. 
and ask him, reveal to us. Reveal where we're off. Reveal where we're unaligned. And give us the courage to walk through it in a way that resembles you. Let me pray for us. We'll get out of here. Jesus, thank you so much for your unwillingness to leave us right where we are, your unwillingness for us to get lazy, your unwillingness for us to say, ah, I've gone far enough. Thank you for how faithful you are to continue to reveal to us how we are following you well and what needs to be changed. God, I I am so thankful how faithful you are in this. It'd be so easy to just give up. It'd be so easy to stay where we are. So God, I pray that as you show us maybe the parts of our life where we have blind spots, the parts of our life where we're unaligned with you, God, no excuses, no lines drawn, no uh, human solutions, God, let us just fall on our face at your feet, ask you to do the work that only you can do, and then get up and do the things that that we can do, which is to humble ourselves in front of you and to say, we're all yours. Do with us what you want. Thank you, Lord, that when you call us into that, it's not a vain effort. It's actually the best way to live. So we ask as we go out of this place and into the world where this gets really actually tested, it's easy to say all this in here. Out there is where it actually matters. God, would you give us strength, courage, resolve in your heart as we do this. We love you. We thank you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.